0: Thanks, John. Well, welcome back to Genesis. My name is Michael, and uh, just extend a welcome to you, glad you are here. Uh, as John mentioned, we started, uh, I think, a pretty awesome series two weeks ago, so this is uh, week number three uh, in this series on uh, conversations on, on life, God, and other small topics. And as John mentioned, uh, the first two weeks we, we looked at God, and who is God, and how can we know God, and how has God revealed himself. And last week we looked at man, and what does it even mean to be human, and Uh, How do we get our image and our identity, um, where does that come from? Uh, Really at the heart of the Conversations series, uh, and this is really going to be over the next uh, eight weeks or seven weeks, I should say, uh, was simply uh, to challenge you, uh, to really challenge you, uh, to encourage you, uh, but to challenge you on many levels, whether it be spiritually, whether it be emotionally, whether it be relationally. And today, just the topic of science uh, is definitely going to challenge all of us. No matter where you are, no matter what your background is, it's definitely going to challenge us uh, intellectually. So, uh, before we dive into today's conversation, which is uh, just on science, uh, I wanted to give, hey, um, it's just way as intro, uh, three challenges or maybe three encouragements before we start. Uh, number one, my first challenge slash encouragement would be this none of us knows everything there is to know. None of us knows everything that there is to know. So we need to approach this in particular conversation with an incredible amount of humility uh, because whether you're a professional scientist or not, no matter what your background is, you don't know everything. Nobody does. So let's engage this conversation, not only today, but let's engage the conversation with others with incredible humility. Uh, second thing I would say uh, as a way of challenge encouragement Uh, This is a highly sensitive subject, so two things on this one. Talk about science, whether you talk about science in church, whether you talk about science with friends, family, coworkers, neighbors, it's a really sensitive subject. We all have ideas on it, we all have opinions on it, Uh, and the two things I would uh, in particular challenge you, encourage you, if you hear something today that irks you, if you hear something today that irks you, don't check out. That would be the easy thing to do is, well, I just heard him say this, and I completely disagree with that, so I'm not going to listen to anything else uh, he has to say and shut down. Uh, Be okay to have your presuppositions or maybe your conclusions challenged a little bit today. Uh, And in many ways, I hope they will be. Uh, So if you hear something that's as way of challenge, maybe even bothersome, maybe even annoying to you, don't check out. Don't check out mentally. Don't check out Know, intellectually, spiritually, just let's, let's walk this path today together uh, and see what God would have. Uh, the second way of encouragement is when we're talking about this conversation today, when we're talking about this conversation with people, and meaning science, uh, let's approach this, again, with great humility. But the point of this conversation is not to get you to think how I think. It's not to get other people to think how you want them to think. Uh, our, our hope is that we would be talking and engaging people in this conversation about science, again, with great humility and a winsomeness in our approach. We're not trying to beat people up with arguments. We're not trying to say, well, my argument is better, so this one trumps yours. Our hope is that we're winning people, is that through these conversations on life, God, and other small topics, is we're actually understanding God. We're understanding these tough topics. So we're going to do that in here, but my hope is that you're doing that out there, Uh, with friends and family, and it's done in a winsome way. Uh, So the third and final challenge or encouragement would simply be this. Uh, We don't need to be afraid of this conversation. Some people find it, uh, at least I've talked to, like, wow, you're really going to talk about science in church? And I'm like, I'm not sure why we wouldn't. Uh, Certainly the Bible talks about science, as it were, so why would we not talk about it uh, in church? Or why would we not be having these conversations again with family, and friends. And we don't need to be afraid of this conversation. I think many people are, is because unfortunately and unnecessarily, this has been an incredibly, uh, and I mean unnecessarily divisive subject or or, or topic. Um, My hope is uh, we don't approach this with this great sense of fear like, wow, we can't talk about it, we can't think about this, is that as we're talking about science today, I promise you, and this might be too bold of a promise, but your view, your understanding of faith, of God, will be enhanced. I like how um, George Coyne, astrophysic, said it like this Nothing we learn about the universe threatens our faith, it only enriches it. We don't need to be afraid of topics and conversations and discussions like science uh, as if it's going to somehow steer us away from God. This conversation is actually going to enrich our understanding of God, enrich our worship of God. Uh, Timothy Keller, in a great book, um, The Reason for God, said this, Many people today, both secular and Christian, want us to believe that science and religion cannot live together. Not only is this untrue, but we believe that a thoughtful dialogue between science and faith is essential for engaging the hearts and minds of individuals today. So we're going to have a thoughtful, reasoned conversation today in hopes that this thoughtful, reasoned conversation will just spill out into the conversations that I believe people are wanting to have. I don't think people are wanting to fight with you on this. I think they want to talk through, this is how I understand it. This is how I came to understand what I think I understand. And we can engage people in a thoughtful, reasoned way that will enrich faith, not actually take away from uh, faith. So, let's begin with, I want to start with, what does the Bible actually say about science? What does the Bible actually have to say about you and me and creation and, and the universe? Uh, now, before I answer that, I want to be clear on what the Bible is and what the Bible is not. The Bible is not a scientific textbook. Galileo, who is known as really the father of, of modern-day, at least observable astronomy, said this, the Holy Spirit intended to teach us how to go to heaven and, Not how the heavens go. The Holy Spirit intended to teach us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. Augustine said this the Bible is not a scientific textbook seeking to answer the ever changing inquiries of science, but rather is a theological textbook seeking to reveal God and the means by which He saves us. So we can't approach the Bible as it's a scientific textbook, it's going to explain everything. But the Bible says a lot about you and me and the universe and creation. And here are five things. I'd encourage you to write these down. This is what the Bible says about, create, uh, about, um, the un- or about the universe. Number one, the Bible reveals that God is the creator and sustainer of all things in the universe. The Bible makes clear God is creator of all things and sustainer of all things. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Colossians 1, he existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. The pronoun he there refers to Jesus. Isaiah, I love this verse, forty five eighteen. For the Lord is God. He created the heavens and earth and put everything in place. He made the world to be lived in, not to be a place of empty chaos. I am the Lord, he says, and there is no other. First thing that we learn that the Bible reveals is that God is creator and sustainer of all things. Number two, the Bible reveals that everything belongs to God. Everything in the universe, planets, stars, galaxies, you, me, everything belongs to God. He is the ruler. Psalm 89, the heavens are yours and earth is yours. Everything in the world is yours. You created it all. Psalm 93, one, the Lord is king. He's robed in majesty Indeed, the Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. The, Lord, the world stands firm, and it cannot be shaken. Why? Well, the Bible reveals everything belongs to God. He's in charge of it. He is ruler of everything. Number three, the Bible, by the way, if you haven't caught on, I'm going to go super fast today, so I hope you can stick with me. Number three, the Bible, if you need caffeine, we've got coffee in the back. Number three, the Bible reveals that creation proclaims the glory and greatness of the creator. So it makes clear, scripture says, creation is screaming, human body, the known universe is screaming that there is a creator to be glorified, to be, to be praised. Uh, Psalm 19 says this, the heavens proclaim, meaning they speak, they testify, they sing the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. Number four, the Bible reveals that God makes himself known to the create, uh, created uh, through creation. It's another way of saying scripture teaches us that God through creation has revealed himself to, his cre- to, the, to the created, meaning you and me. Romans 1, 19 and 20 they know the truth about God because He's made it obvious to them. For ever since the world has created, was created, people have seen the earth and sky through everything God made. They can clearly see the invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. We talked about that, excuse me, two weeks ago, when I just said you just need to open your eyes and look around you and just see the amazingness of of your own self, of your own body, and how it all works, and the amazingness of the, the creation uh, of the world and universe we live in. And create, the creator, through his creation, is revealing himself to the created. Number five, and I like this one. I like all of them. The Bible reveals that the creator is wicked powerful. Thank you. That was more laughs that time than in first service. So the Bible reveals that the creator is wicked powerful. Listen to Psalm 33. The Lord merely spoke, and the heavens were created. He breathed the word, and the stars were born. He assigned the sea its boundaries and locked oceans in vast reservoirs. Let the whole world fear the Lord, and let everyone stand in awe of him. Verse 9. For when he spoke, the world began, and It had appeared at his command. The creator, the Bible makes clear, is wicked powerful. At just his spoken word, there was no map or how to create a universe, step one, step two, step three. He spoke, the Bible says, and the universe came into being. Actually, these few verses in Psalm 33 and some also in Genesis chapter one are about as close to science as the Bible will get, meaning science primarily deals with the question of how well, how does it work? How does this this function? How does the universe function? How does the body function? And the question of how, in many ways, is answered in Psalm 33. Well, how? God spoke. His word was that powerful that everything came into existence from his spoken word. Now, again, if you're a scientist uh, and you certainly don't believe in God, you'd hear well, that's not a how. That's, you know, I, can't, I don't even believe the Bible. So all of these things that you're telling me that the Bible teaches, that's not my starting point. It's my starting point because I wanted you to be clear that scripture is not silent as it relates to science. Scripture is not quiet as it relates to science. Uh, but I also said the Bible is not a scientific textbook. Uh, also, I would uh, equally say, science can only accomplish so much, meaning it has a scope of how far it can go. Uh, I like how Robert uh, Vellard, in his, the book that we're encouraging you to read, Conversations with C.S. Lewis, said this, Even if science could answer every question there is about the universe, its origins, its evolution, and so forth, such scientific answers would move us no nearer to philosophical truth than if we remained scientifically ignorant omniscient science still could not answer why there is something, the universe, rather than nothing, or where everything came from, or why we exist. Let us not mangle what science can do and what it cannot do. My point is that we don't ignore science. We can definitely learn and be encouraged and challenged and inspired by science, but science has its limits, meaning it cannot explain how everything and where every why we even are here, why we exist. But what science does is it teaches us the how. Now, um, again, I realize that maybe some of you are here today and you're not in a place yet, and you're just kind of on that road of searching and asking questions and discovery uh, about God. Uh, and if you're talking to maybe a, a scientific mind, uh, and I'm explaining. Well, Michael, I don't believe in God, but what's really interesting to me, in a lot of study and reading and research that I've done, is that even scientists who do not believe in God—we either be agnostic or atheistic—would uh, say would say this. The more, or have said this, Freeman Dyson: the more I examine the universe and the details of its architecture, the more evidence I find that the universe, in some sense, must have known we were we were coming. Somehow, even scientists who do not adhere to uh, the creator that scripture teaches and reveals are coming to a place of saying, it, it would certainly seem to me, in some sense, the universe must have known we were coming. And that's what we're going to unpack now. The question is this. If this is what the Bible teaches about creation and some of the things I shared, and its creator, then is this in contradiction to what science has actually learned about creation? Meaning, is modern-day science actually contradict the Bible and vice versa? Uh, that's the question we're going to spend a lot of time on right now. But before you can go there, you at least have to answer one simple question of, well, what is science? What? How would you, if someone asked you, what is science, what would you say? And so here's a, a good working definition. In Latin, science just means knowledge. Uh, so. Science, or knowledge, is a systematic structure that builds and organizes knowledge in the form of testable explanations and predictions. Okay? It's a way to make observations uh, and have testa- a, a way to test those theories, those ideas, uh, and search for knowledge. Now, in order for science to remain science, it's got to remain faithful to itself. If science will be true science, it has to be or remain faithful to itself, meaning scientific theory is empirical, meaning you can observe it. That's the whole point. But it's always open to falsification if new evidence is presented. Thus, scientists must be on guard against uh, certain biases. So if you put a theory out there, you test that theory, you observe that theory, and the evidence doesn't support that theory, you either need to drop that theory or somehow change or alter that theory until the evidence supports it. Uh, I like how Jonathan Wells, biologist, said this. Like all other scientific theories, Darwinian evolution must, and this was a book specifically on evolution Darwinian evolution must be continually compared with the evidence. If it does not fit the evidence, it must be reevaluated or abandoned. Otherwise, it's not science but myth. My big point in just saying this is simply, if science is going to be science, it's got to be faithful to itself. And if a a theory is proposed, and it's it's observed, and what is observed does not support the theory, you got to change it, or you've got to abandon that theory. If not, it's no longer science, it's just a myth. So in answering the question of what is science, one of the things that just, I kind of knew this, but didn't really know how vast the science field is. Uh, and here's a, a snapshot of science. So when we talk about science, we're talking about anatomy, anthropology, archaeology, astronomy, astronomy, astrophysics, biochemistry, biology, chemistry, cosmology, economics, engineering, whether it's aerospace, mechanical, nuclear, electrical, civil, genetics, geochemistry, geology, geophysics, hydrology, mathematics, medicine, meteorology, microbiology, neurology, uh, you read it up on the screen oceanography paleontology <laughs> physics paleontology physics physiology psychology my major thermodynamics and i put in for my wife zoology that was her major now i left out about another 50 75 different fields of study of science and within each field there's literally dozens and dozens just under medicine do you know how many different ways of, of different scientific studies just under the category of medicine my point in saying that is simply you don't know everything no one does. So we approach the conversation of science both at a micro and a macro level with extreme extreme humility. Now we've looked at like what science is like how do you define science uh, and the many the vast categories within science but I want to answer another ask another question before we look at the big one of does modern Day science and, and the Bible and creation and, and creator, are they in contradiction? Why can you even think scientifically? Like, why is there even such a thing as scientist? Meaning, why is it even possible that we can think reasoned, logically? Like, why can we even have scientific minds, as it were, not only asking thoughtful, logical, reasoned questions about the world we live in, but how is it possible? that we can have insights into the questions we're asking? How is it even possible that we can even have answers in some cases uh, to the world and the universe that is as vast as ours? Now, if you're a scientist and you don't believe in God, there's no way that you can answer that question, in my humble opinion. If you don't believe in, it, in God, how do you answer the question of how you can even be a rational thinking, logical, intentional, purposeful being, asking questions, and seeking to discover. As a Christian, which I am, it makes perfect sense that we can think, we can feel, we can understand, we can reason. Why? Well, imago day, like what we looked at last week. We've been created in fashion and form in the image of our creator, and our creator is a rational, logical, thinking God. And we've been created in His image, So the only reason that we can even do science, in my conclusion at least would be, is because there is a God, and we've been fashioned and created in his image. All right, we've addressed what is science, we've addressed why can we do science. Let's look at the question, is is modern day science and Bible in contradiction to one another? You ready for this answer? Yes and no. Is science and Bible in contradiction to one another? And my answer is uh, yes and no. I say no because there is no conflict between Christianity and science in itself. We believe God created the world with natural laws and orderliness, which is the basic foundation of just scientific enterprise. There's no disagreement there between our belief of God creating the world with laws and orderliness and purpose and, and design and science at that level? Now, I would say yes, because there is a conflict between Christianity and scientific naturalism. A scientific naturalist believes that all creation is the product of time, of energy, and chance. Now, probably the, at least in modern day times, the most, I would say, most famous atheist but scientific naturalist was Bertrand Russell, and he said this, man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving. That is, origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves, his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collections of atoms. His scientific naturalistic mind led him to the conclusion that it's it's just an all accident, it's all random. Now, Fast forward a few cent or a few years, actually, Richard Dawkins, who actually holds the same position, was an atheist now, converted to being an agnostic, um, which is not a great conversion, by the way, uh, said this. Someone asked him in an interview, uh, you hold the same position as Bertrand Russell. Has this philosophy, has this approach, has this scientific naturalistic mind, are you depressed? Like, has it led you to depression because... There's no, where do you even get things like purpose and meaning if you're just a random collection of atoms? And this was his answer. I don't feel depressed about it. But if somebody does, that's their problem. Maybe the logic is deeply pessimistic, the universe is bleak, cold, and empty, but so what? Now, I encouraged you uh, in week number one, if you have a belief, and we all have beliefs, Follow your belief to its logical conclusion. Follow that belief system or structure to where, it logically, where the road logically takes you and to its concluding end. Now, if you're a scientific, naturalistic mind, that's, that's your worldview, as it were, where does that road take you? I see that's a road that takes you utter, uh, ultimately to a life of despair. Someone asked him the question, are you depressed? Because it is a depressive lifestyle if you're, just, you're an accident. You're just an accident. Now, I think uh, to be a scientific naturalist, it would take an incredible amount of faith because, and I'll tell you why. Here are just a few. This is a snapshot. Uh, remember, I'm answering the question, is there a contradiction between Bible and, and uh, modern-day science? no at a top level. But yes, if you're a scientific naturalist, here are some of the things that you would have to believe or agree with to to be a scientific naturalist. Number one, you need to believe that nothing produces everything. You would need to agree or believe that nothing produced everything. Out of nothing came you. Out of nothing came the universe. J.P. Moreland said this in response. You can't get something from nothing. If the universe began with dead matter, having no conscience, how then do you get something totally different? Conscious, living, thinking, feeling, believing creatures from materials that don't have that. But if everything started in the mind of God, we don't have a problem with explaining the origin of our mind. If you're going to believe that, you need to believe that nothing produces everything. How do you get something totally different? Number two, I would say you need to believe that non-life produces life. Non-life produces life. Uh, If you're familiar with the Genome Project, Francis S. Collins said this, I can't imagine how nature, in this case the universe, could have created itself. And the very fact that the universe had a beginning implies that someone was able to begin it. And it seems to me that it had to be outside of nature. Scientific naturalists, you would have to believe non-life produces life. And I'm, how? How does non-life create, produce life? Third one, and I'll stop with this one. You need to believe that randomness produces fine-tuning. It's another way of saying out of chaos comes complete, perfect harmony perfect order. Now, let me give an example of how this would work just with our bodies. Each of us has six feet of DNA coiled inside every one of our bodies, three trillion cells, okay? All of us have DNA in every cell. You have over three trillion cells, okay? Each DNA strand contains a four-letter chemical alphabet that spells out precise assembly and instructions for all proteins from which our bodies uh, are made. That's amazing to me. Your DNA in every single one of your three trillion cells has an alphabet that is spelling out, communicating what it is supposed to do. Now, if you were to look at my notes from today, and you came up afterwards, and you just happened to pick it up, and you're like, wow, there's letters. And those letters actually form words, and those words form sentences, and those sentences form paragraphs, and those paragraphs form like one cohesive thought. You would not make the conclusion in just looking at my notebook, well, that just probably randomly happened. You would easily make the conclusion, well, clearly someone wrote that out. Someone put the letters with the words and the sentences and the paragraphs to make an ongoing cohesive thought or or story or narrative. Um, It's it's not random, as it were. Uh, So, yes, scientific naturalism would be in direct contradiction to what the Bible teaches primarily because it doesn't acknowledge that there's a creator or at least a designer, but the conclusions they make, they're not even scientifically supported. It's not even rational to believe that nothing produces everything or that non-life produces life or that randomness produces fine tuning. That last one, uh, I'm not sure I've already quoted him once, Fred Hoyle, astronomer, said this, the probability of of life arising on Earth by purely natural means without special divine aid is less than the probability that a flight-worthy Boeing 747 should be assembled by a hurricane roaring through a junkyard. It's just not its not even logical or rational, I should say, to think that it possibly could. So my question would simply be to, if you are here and you're of that a scientific naturalist mind or to those that hold that position or worldview, Why? Why is it that you can hold a position that, at least in my humble opinion, it it doesn't make sense, it's not rational? Uh, I like uh, Philip Johnson, who wrote a book, uh, Darwin on Trial also wrote a book called The Wedge of Truth, said this, people are always looking for ways to forget God, even if they have to give up reason in order to do it. If your decision is, I don't want to believe in God, you will make anything and everything make sure that it supports that. And my hope is if you're in that worldview right now, that you would be okay to make the transition right now. Let's look at the evidence. Let's look at what actually science teaches us about you and about the world we live in. And after that, then I would encourage you and challenge you to take the evidence and then weigh it. This is a few things, a few things of what science has taught us about creation. And my hope is as I I walk through this, I'm going to share some things of what science has taught us or instructed us or made us aware of on both a micro level as well as a macro level. You would be absolutely amazed that you would hear some of these things and say, my goodness, God is an amazing God. Our creator is a creative god. Here's a few things on a micro level. As I mentioned, you possess 3 trillion cells, all coordinated by the brain. In order for the body to work properly, all these cells have to be in the right place, doing the right thing at the right time. How do they do that? Hormones, I'm glad you asked. Chemical messengers are sent from one cell to another. When the hormone reaches the target cell, it attaches itself to a receptor molecule. But in order for it to attach itself, the the molecule and the hormone must match, because receptor molecules are designed to react to one and only one specific hormone. It will not react to any molecule that is similar uh, to the intended hormone, the receptor hormone specific. This means that if just one atom is out of place on the hormone or receptor, the receptor will not react to the hormone. Thus, the cell will not function. Thus, your body would not function. I read that, and I'm like, that is, that's amazing. Three trillion cells in your body. Your brain controls all of them, sends out messages. It's absolutely mind-boggling. We move on. You have 131 million photoreceptors in your eyes. If you want to be blown away about something in particular in your body, just do some research on how the eye works and what make, and, and how the eye even functions. 131 million photoreceptors in your eyes that make your eyes work. Your heart beats 100,000 times, pumps 2,000 gallons of blood every day. 24,000 hair-like cells in your inner ear. And man, not on your outer ear. This is in your inner ear. Hair-like cells in your inner ear, which react to sound, and then convert it into nerve impulses. Your liver, I was amazed by this, manufactures more than 1,000 different enzymes, each controlling different chemical reactions. Produces over 1,000 enzymes. Uh, Your liver is working hard. There are 35 million gland cells in your stomach to allow it to break down food without it actually digesting itself. When I read some of these on a very micro level, what reminds me or what scripture reminds me, I come, come across a verse like Psalm 139. You, are made, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You can listen to just a few things of how the body is made up and how the body functions and how it works. And you can come to a conclusion that says, wow, that's, that's completely random. Amazing how something completely random can work so well. Or one response could be like, thank you. Thank you that you took time to create and fashion and inform me that I am fearfully and wonderfully, I am complex." that you made me. Here's some questions at the macro level. Our universe, it's huge. How huge? Speed of light. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second. If you snapped your finger, light just traveled around the globe, our Earth, seven times. The sun, 93 million miles away from Earth. So when you feel the warmth of the sun on your face, it left the sun eight minutes prior. If you wanted to travel to the sun, which would be a very bad idea, you wouldn't even get close. But if you wanted to try, you would need to uh, travel 17 years flying nonstop 24 hours a day in what would be our fastest known rocket or ship. Scientists at Caltech, this one was amazing, believe they've discovered the farthest object from Earth, a tiny galaxy that is 13 billion light years away. 13 billion light years away, which means. That galaxy is roughly 13 billion times 5.88 trillion miles away. Why 5.88? Because that's how far light travels in one year. 13 billion times 5.8 trillion miles, and that's how far away that galaxy is. You, you hear that, and you have to say, well, that's, a, that's pretty amazing. That's a vast, that's a big universe. The Milky Way, home to our planet, is roughly 125,000 light years across. So to get to one end from our our galaxy to the other, it would take you 125,000 light years traveling at 186,000 miles per second. Our small galaxy is home to billions of stars, one of which is the sun, which is located 25,000 light years from the center of the Milky Way, the sun 300,000 times greater than the Earth, and it burns at 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. Now, just as planets in our solar system orbit the sun, the sun, along with billions of other stars in our galaxy, orbit around its center. A galactic revolution uh, takes our sun, our sun, 250 million years to complete. How about this? They don't know this for sure, so we'll give them a little grace on this one, but there's somewhere between 100 to 200 billion Galaxies and within each galaxy is estimated between two to four hundred billion stars. there is a computer in a, a supercomputer in Germany that scientists have used to come up with a map of the universe and it actually mapped out over five hundred billion galaxies and within each three four hundred million stars that 's amazing to me that 's at a a macro view and when I hear some of those Things about planets and and galaxies and stars. You know what comes to mind is Psalm 147. He counts the stars and he calls them all by name. Isn't that amazing? You can't even do the math on the uh, billions and billions of galaxies and the billions and billions and billions, hundreds of times over within each galaxy of the amount of stars. And this is what scripture says. He counts the stars and he calls them all by name. Now to a Christian, the discoveries the scientists have made about the universe solidify for us. God is an absolutely awesome, awe-inspiring God. But what if you're, what if you don't believe in God? What if you're, you're doing this science and you're doing this study at a micro-macro level? What conclusion Are you possibly making from this? Because you start from, I don't believe in God. So when you these are are known things, these are measurable things in our body and our universe. What conclusion could you possibly be coming to? What is the universe teaching them? Over the past 50 years, scientists have begun to discover, and this is an actual term, scientific term, mysterious coincidences or lucky accidents in the universe, meaning they discovered that if there were slight changes or deviations or variations to the fundamental constants, things like gravity, electromagnetic force, strong, weak nuclear force, distance between stars and planets, life, it just wouldn't be possible. If there was minor slight deviations to what scientists call fundamental constants, it wouldn't work. There would be no you. There wouldn't be a me, there would be no stars, there would be no planets, there would be no galaxies, there would be no universe." Francis Collins, again, a genome project, said this: "When you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants, the gravita- gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and weak nuclear forces, etc that have precise values. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases, by one part in a million million, the universe could not actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxies, stars, planets, or people. I wanted to share with you, here are some of the fundamental constants that need to be in place, that have to be in place for you to work for this universe to work. Universe is expanding outward. If it expanded any faster, it would overcome gravity, and galaxies, stars, planets would absolutely fly apart. If it expanded at a slower rate, gravity would take over, and everything would come crashing back together. Nuclear weak force is 10 to the 28th times the strength of gravity. If the weak force had been slightly weaker, all hydrogen in the universe would have been turned into helium, making it impossible to have water. A stronger nuclear force by as little as just 0.2% would have prevented the formation of protons protons, and no atoms. No protons, no atoms, guess what? No you. You don't exist. If off by just 0.2%, if the difference in mass between a proton and neutron were not exactly as it were, roughly two times the mass of an electron, then all neutrons would have become protons, which means, again, life would not be possible. The exact size of protons and neutrons, it's amazing. How about this one? It's known as a Circumstellar Habitable Zone. Earth, 93 million miles away. You can't be too close. Otherwise, too much water evaporates into the atmosphere, and it causes a runaway greenhouse effect, meaning the oceans boil. But if you get too far out, it gets too cold. Water and carbon dioxide freeze and you develop runaway glaciation. And Earth's position was changed by just a percent disaster. That means we are perfectly located in the universe. Too close, too far, it doesn't work. Earth happens to be located, happens to be located. It's a coincidence that we are placed in our galaxy exactly where we are too close to the nucleus of the galaxy, and we're in danger of getting swallowed by black holes. But if Earth (coughs) was at the outer edge of our galaxy, there would be a lack of life-giving elements like hydrogen and helium, both compounds pretty important to life. Last one, the moon. Again, it just happens to be the right size and in the right place to help create uh, the environment in which we live. If the moon were not exactly where it is and the size of that what the moon actually is, the Earth's tilt would uh, vary uh, chaotically, causing just devastating results. Again, scientists, these are not disputable things. Why I'm bringing these things up is if you're a scientist or you believe that there is no God, then you have to coin these things up as uh, what they would call mysterious coincidences, lucky accidents, uh, but they do not disagree that there's fundamental constants. What does it mean? What do all these fundamental constants, what do they teach scientists? And this is, I've been I'm trying to be as balanced as I can, present quotations from scientists who do not believe in God, as well as scientists who do believe in God. This is John A. Okafy said this, if the universe had not been, again, astrophysic for NASA and Harvard uh, professor, if the universe had not been made with the most exacting precision, we could never have come into existence. It's my view that these circumstances indicate the universe was created for man to live in. So even scientists who do not agree that there is a God at least agree that there is intentionality, that there is design, that there is small-eye intelligence. I want to finish with this question. The question would simply be, how do you make the jump from small I intelligence to small D designer to it's actually God as revealed to us in scripture? Some of you are here and you believe in God and these amazing things I'm sharing with you that science has discovered is now going to enhance your worship, is going to enhance you literally walking around with a great sense of awe, but to those who might not be a Christian or might not be in a place where you believe in God, how can you take what has been shared today, share it with others, by the way, but share it and say, it's not a small I intelligence, a small D designer. How do we make that jump from, it's actually what the Bible reveals to us as God, as the creator. I'm going to share with you very quickly three things. I encourage you to write this down. This is how I'm trying to help make the jump of how does one come to see that God of the Bible is the creator of the universe. Number one, examine the evidence. You've got to examine the evidence. Is the God of the Bible consistent with the discoveries that science has made, is learning? And I would answer that with an absolutely overwhelming yes. Scripture makes clear that God creates so that the created will see him and glorify him. Like how Sir John Polkinghorne said this, a very important aspect of belief in God is that not only is there a being who is the creator of the world, but also this being is worthy of worship. So examine the evidence, and I would say the evidence is overwhelming that the God of the Bible and what we know of God of the Bible is screaming that he is the one who has created this. God creates so the created will see him. God is careful. He is calculated. And what I learn about God through that is that he cares. If you don't believe in God, well, there's there's many problems with that. But there's many people who struggle to believe that God cares. And what I would hope you'd see is the care and the calculation that he took with you, with your body, with how you work in the universe and how we live in this amazing world you would see that God took care and calculation. He was careful that he communicates he cares for you. I like how the psalmist said it, the unfailing love of the Lord, it just fills everything. Everything in the universe screams the love of God for the world he created and for those he created to live in this world. It screams that you are loved by God. The fact that we live where we live and are placed where we're placed, it just screams with the message of Scripture that God is a loving God, and it shows through His creation. I'd say this, God is powerful and purposeful so that the created, you can trust Him. God is, has, is purposeful in His design. God is powerful in His design. Creation screams that. Creation does not communicate the message of craziness and chaos and disorder. Science reveals that creation is so amazing, so large, so vast, so big, so enormous. And what the message of the Bible communicates is, God, is, he's done that all. And you can trust him. If he's powerful enough to, to care for all of that, the world and the universe in your body, The conclusion is you can trust him with you. You can trust him with your life, with your hopes, your desires, your dreams, your passions, your loves. Isaiah 40 says this, Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Even youths will become weak and tired, and young men will fall in exhaustion, but those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not grow faint. Again, the message of Scripture is communicating we can trust God. He's purposeful. He's powerful. We can trust Him. Number one, examine the evidence. Examine the evidence. And the evidence of science and the evidence of Scripture do coalesce and they scream there is a God who's created you in this universe with great care and precision. Number two, examine your options. What are your options? If you don't believe in God, that there is a God that is the creator of all things, including you and the universe you live in, what other option do you have? The option is, well, I came from nothing. I came from randomness. I came from, I don't know where. I don't have answers to those questions, so where will you find meaning and purpose in the life you live? I like how Mark Driscoll in his book called Doctrine said, "...the Bible teaches that creation in general and human life in particular were made by God, belong to God, exist for God, are restless apart from God, and will return to God. If you do not believe the doctrine of creation, you likely believe that you came from no one. You are alive on earth for nothing." and when you die, you will go nowhere. Examine not only the evidence, but examine the options. The option that there is a God, there is a creator, and that we can know him is a pretty amazing option. Number three, and it's very similar to that, examine the possibility. When I in writing this and even reading this and sharing this with you now, I'm overwhelmed at the thought that you mean little old me, one person on a planet made up of 7 billion people living in one galaxy comprised in a universe of hundreds of billions of galaxies. You mean to tell me that little old me can actually know God and have a relationship with God? if that doesn't humble you and lead you to incredible gratitude, I'm not sure what would. A verse you probably know very well, but it just speaks to this, it screams to this, John 3.16, for God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. The God who created you created you to know him not just know about him, but to know him. And he made that possible through faith in his son. It's not faith in you. It's not faith in, in your works. It's not faith in being a good person, good man, good woman. It's faith that God sent his son to get me, to save me, to rescue me. So how do you make that, that bridge between someone who's like, I would confess that there is intelligence. I would confess that there's a designer because the design is amazing. How do you make that jump of, it's the God of the Bible. It's the God of scriptures. Examine the evidence, examine your options, and examine the possibility. Lee Strobel, who started out as uh, an atheist, in his book, um, The Case for the Creator, said this. At the end of the day, we need to weigh the evidence and make an informed decision. The universe, if governed both by physical laws and spiritual laws, the physical laws point us towards their Creator, and the spiritual laws tell us how we can have how we can know him in a personal way. That's another way of saying, you've got to make a decision. There, you, you can't live indifferent uh, because the world we live in doesn't even allow for that. We need to respond to what has been done. Examine the evidence, examine the options and examine the possibility. And God said, I loved you so much. I loved you so much that I sent my son for you. In a few weeks, we're going to be talking about not only examining the scientific evidence, but examining the historical evidence as well, because those two work well together. But next week, we're going to talk politics. Examine. The evidence screams that the God of the Bible is the creator He created you to know him and to be with him. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for even the opportunity uh, to gather it like this, to learn, to be challenged, to be hopefully encouraged, inspired, God, by who you are, by the amazing things that you have done. But God, we look to the universe, which is absolutely awe-inspiring, amazing, We can look at just how our bodies function and work, and it's awesome and inspiring. But God, there is no more awesome thing that you have done than to make it possible for us to even know you. Not intellectually know you, but relationally know you. And God, I pray that if there's just one, if not more, that are here right now, I pray, God, if they came not knowing, but curious, asking questions, God, I pray that today would be the day they, they make the decision to know you and get known by you. Today would be the day the decision gets made, God, to put their faith in your son, Jesus, who came to, to rescue and restore and redeem. If that's you, if that's where you're at, the journey with God begins, the relationship with God begins, not with you working towards God, but receiving the gift that God's given you in Jesus only Jesus makes us right. For those of you that are here today and you know, God, you're walking with God. God, my prayer for them is that we would walk around with just such a sense of wonder and awe of who you are and the world we live in, how you've created and fashioned and formed us. God, my prayer is that we would walk around saying, this is amazing in worship of you we're going to spend some time in worship through song and worship through communion I've asked some of our leaders uh, that if you have questions if you want to talk some more about what's been said today if you want to learn even how to become a Christian what it means to put your faith in Jesus uh, take a step of faith today and step out and, and just come and say hey what about this can you we talk about this can you pray for me here as you're ready, if you're a Christian, come celebrate communion and remember it's Jesus and only Jesus who makes us right with God through his perfect life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. So as you're ready, come and celebrate communion today.